Hi everyone, it's Gina and Earth, and you're listening to Unpacked Global Citizens. Every episode, we'll explore the topics of home, community, language, and belonging. Our guests are people like you, who are global citizens from all walks of life, who will take you through their ups and downs and lessons learned. We hope to share with you practical advice and personal insights on what it means to be uprooted and how to make the most of it. So whether you've just settled into your new home, about to make a big move, or thinking of a change, this one's for you. Value beyond money. Navigating personal finance abroad with Dexter Shuang. Welcome to this week's podcast episode, where we have the pleasure of introducing you to Dexter Shuang, a Chinese American expat living in Singapore. Dexter's journey is one of courage, adventure. And the pursuit of building a life that aligns with his personal values. Dexter's story begins in Canada, where he was born to parents from Shanghai. As a Chinese American growing up in the Midwest, he learned to navigate the cultural complexities of balancing his ethnic identity with his American upbringing. He then moved to the East Coast to attend Dartmouth College, before starting his tech career in Silicon Valley on the West Coast. Despite his success in the fast-paced tech world. Dexter's internal compass always pointed towards adventure, new experiences, and a sense of purpose. This prompted him to leave San Francisco and to move to Singapore, where he founded the Money Abroad newsletter with the aim of helping expats to implement systems for building wealth overseas. One of the key takeaways from Dexter's story is the importance of personal finance. He learned firsthand that setting up systems and automations is possible, even in complex setups across countries. This is an essential lesson for anyone seeking to take control of their financial future, regardless of where they are in the world. Dexter encourages us to prioritize self-care and self-love, and to avoid seeking external validation. He believes that building habits and making connections are key to feeling at home in a new place. This mentality allows him to fully embrace the opportunities and joys that come with living in different countries. We hope that Dexter's journey has inspired you to take control of your finances and pursue adventure. Don't forget to share this episode with your friends and leave us a review. Thank you with a big smile. Hi, Dexter. Welcome to our podcast. How are you doing today? Doing wonderful. Yeah, excited to be with you guys here. How are you guys? Good. Thank We're you. doing good. Yeah, great to have you. To kick things off, Dexter, could you tell us and the audience a bit about yourself? Sure. My name is Dexter. I'm a Chinese American, so born and raised. Well, born in Canada, raised in the U.S. Actually, I can go a little bit more about that later. But moved to Singapore actually three years ago, where I've been since then. And professionally, I worked in tech for the last nearly a decade. As a product lead in various companies in the tech industry, and now I'm also writing Money Abroad, which is a newsletter for expats to help them build systems around building wealth, living abroad. That's a short, yeah, summary. That's awesome. And maybe we start from the beginning. Dexter, you said you were born in Canada, but you introduce yourself as a. Chinese American, can you tell us a bit about your family background and your upbringing? Yeah, I know that must have caused some surprise. But if I go all the way back to my parents, my parents are both originally from Shanghai, China. That's where they grew up, and in the '80s, they actually decided they they wanted to, like many families at the time, seek professional opportunities in、mm-hmm. North America. Initially, they wanted to. Moved to the U.S., but they actually chose Canada first, more for immigration reasons. It's just a little、mm. bit easier to、mm. move there. At least at that point in time in the late '80s, it was easier for them to move there. So I was born in Toronto, Canada, and between the ages of you know when I was born until when I was five, we kind of bounced around a lot. Like I. Was actually like taken by my mom to go back to Shanghai, like to grow up with my grandparents for a bit, and then、mm-hmm. brought back to Canada, where we lived in Toronto, Hamilton, and Windsor. So、mm-hmm. we didn't move to the U.S. when until I was 
five, actually. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this whole time, like my parents <clears throat> were both working and studying. So both of them went to graduate school in Canada, mm -hmm. e even though they already went to graduate school in Shanghai, they mm -hmm. did it again, you know, for better kind of career prospects in mm -hmm. Canada. And they both, you know, found jobs. My dad ended up becoming IT professional. My mom ended up owning a restaurant once we moved to the US. Okay. And where in the US did you grow up? It sounds like then all of your like schooling and most of your like childhood and teenage year were in the US then. Yes. When I was five, we moved from Windsor, Canada to Michigan. And mm -hmm. it was Farmington, Michigan at the time, which is like in the metro Detroit area. It's like 30 minutes outside Detroit. So we did that because my dad at the time was an IT professional. Like I mm -hmm. mentioned, he was working for a healthcare company in Canada and that he found another job pretty much like right across the river <laughs> in Michigan. <laughs> and after he got that job, then we yeah, basically picked up the family and then moved over to Michigan. And so that was always kind of the direction he wanted to go. He wanted to take himself professionally to the U.S. and take mm -hmm. his family to the U.S. Mm -hmm. And it was a little bit easier, you know, coming from, you know, Canada's side where he already had built up, you know, some professional experience to actually make that transition through the immigration process. Mm -hmm. I do. And what was it like growing up in Michigan? Were there other, you know, Asian American families or kids in your school? And was it pretty natural for you because you were born in Canada? Or did you feel, or did you feel different as a immigrant? Yeah, I think there's like two parts of this question. So I'll <laughs> start with the first part, which is, you know, what was Michigan like when I was growing up there? Mm. I think Michigan was in a pretty interesting time and place because Detroit is the heart of the auto industry in mm. the US, right? Mm -hmm. You know, GM, Ford, Diamond, Chrysler, they're all there. And when we moved there, it was, you know, the late 90s. And what, you know, car manufacturers were really big at the time, it was not only American car manufacturers, right? But it was also Japanese car manufacturers, mm. like, you know, Koreans were, were coming up as well. So interestingly enough, when I look back on that period, even though when I was growing up, I didn't recognize, you know, there were that many kind of minorities or it didn't feel like there were that many minorities, mm -hmm. you know, around mm -hmm. me. But if I kind of like think back, there were actually quite a lot of Japanese families, for, for example, or Indian families that had relocated to suburban Michigan to work mm -hmm. for auto manufacturers or suppliers or kind of like different services that would actually serve the employees of those companies. When I think back to my high school, I think there were maybe about like 10 to 20% minorities, including a lot of Asians. So it still felt like I was growing up, you know, to your second question, I was kind of growing up as an outsider or I was kind of growing up different because of different cultural values and mm -hmm. different kind of interests as well. But there were still some around. Like yeah. I could walk down the hallway at high school and see like, you know, a Japanese kid, for example. Okay. Mm. Yeah. And was there a Chinese American community in the town where you were growing up? There was. It was quite interesting because growing up, there were kind of like different diasporas or like, you know, pockets of communities. I would be curious, you know, to hear if this existed in Bangkok as well. But, you know, my parents were from Shanghai. So we would have these mm -hmm. Shanghainese, you know, <laughs> family dinners, right, with all these like different Shanghainese families within the suburban Detroit area. And everyone would get together, kind of like, you know, the parents would finally get to like, you know, flex their Shanghainese. And, <laughs> you know, they would be able to like, kind of go back in time to when they were younger and feel like that. And then all of us kids would just sit at the kids table and then we would, you know, play video games, just hang out, do normal kids things. What's interesting was that later in high school, I also joined a nonprofit volunteer organization called 
Suchi, and it mm. was a Taiwanese Buddhist organization. So then through that, I met all of these Taiwanese friends and our family started mingling with some of these Taiwanese kind of like families that go to their family parties as well. And it was quite just interesting to see, you know, there are mm -hmm. a lot of similarities across all of these different smaller communities. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What I'd also like to explore a little bit is how did the two cultures that you were growing up with, so Shanghainese back at home or Shanghainese American versus the traditional Midwestern American. So how did Thanksgiving look like for you at home? Did you guys celebrate it? Was oh, that's turkey? a great question. Uh, <laughs> or, yeah. That's a fun question because the way we celebrated actually changed through the years. Mm -hmm. And we took bits and pieces from different cultures each of the times that, that we celebrated. So for a period of time, my family actually, so I actually grew up as an only child. So mm -hmm. it was just me and my parents, but they wanted us to have kind of like, you know, bigger celebrations for, you know, the holidays, right? So mm -hmm. for holidays like Thanksgiving, my parents kind of felt like it would be nice to celebrate with one of my good friend's families at the time. He's, you know, from kind of an Italian background, but, you mm -hmm. know, you know, normal kind of American style Thanksgiving dinners. Mm. And we would go to his house. And sometimes we would bring in like other families. Eventually, mm -hmm. we had dinners with them. That was like more traditionally American mm. Thanksgiving. But then later, we also had some family dinners with ourselves and other Chinese families, mm -hmm. like Chinese American mm. families. And we would do this might be blasphemy, but we do like, you know, <laughs> duck instead of turkey, right? Mm -hmm. Like do the, do like the roasted duck with, you know, mashed potatoes on the side. Wow. Mm. Right. <laughs> so try to get the hybrid, uh -huh, you know, taste going. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we did a little bit of fusion there. Really nice. Nice. It's like modern American Thanksgiving. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Totally. Which, by the way, I think there is a lot of potential for anyone who wants a business idea, like to think about mm -hmm. how do you create these like hybrid, you know, holiday, mm -hmm. you know, festivities and also menus. Yeah. Like how do you create like a hybrid Chinese American like Thanksgiving menu? Yeah. That'd be nice. I love if, that. You know, if I could, it, if I could yeah. just like order it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it can also be like, I don't know, Southeast Asian inspired one, like a Hawaiian one, totally. Mediterranean one. <laughs> totally. So I, I did a Thanksgiving dinner in Singapore with an Indonesian friend and she was just like, you know what? This American Thanksgiving meal is going to cost too much money mm. in Singapore to like order turkey and everything. Mm. So yeah. let's scratch that. I'm going to order Indonesian style Thanksgiving. <laughs> mm. What did yeah, that which, look like? Yeah. That, that looked like a lot of spicy Indonesian <laughs> foods. <laughs> like a bunch of noodles, nasi goreng, like, <laughs> you know, different. Mm. Honestly, it's mostly Indonesian. <laughs> but it was very, it was very good. But delicious, mm. because I think at the end of the day, or at least what I love about that holiday is that everyone comes together. It is celebrating kind of with a lot of people and just spending time together. Totally. I do think Thanksgiving is, you know, a fun memory for me mm -hmm. because it was always, even though I don't know about like kind of the American historical context of Thanksgiving and how I feel about that, but it certainly, you know, during my childhood, you know, generated like these fond memories when I will look, look back, I'm like, oh, yeah, like, I had a good time, you know, during my childhood. Was it the same mm -hmm. for you in Bangkok? Was or was there any celebration of Thanksgiving there? So I went to an international school. And it was an American international school. So we did have mm. these holiday celebrations. So we would have like pie fest, right before Thanksgiving, which was my favorite day of the school year, I think, because all these moms would bake pies and bring it to school and pies that I don't know, right? Because like Swiss pies are like apple pie, all these kind of like fruit pies. Um, I love that. <laughs> that you get. Mm -hmm. And then my favorite was this like 
banana cream pie, and I've never had it before. And it's like as American as it gets, and it's so good. And so oh, yeah, that's a good I point. Would, look forward to eating a slice of banana cream pie <laughs> that's right yeah like i don't see too many pies in southeast asia to be honest mm. <laughs> like pumpkin pies no it's true yeah i feel like in the southeast asia we have more like fluffy cakes and like tarts yes, pastries mm-hmm. yeah mm. Mm. also ice wow. creams yeah. yeah okay getting hungry and Dexter maybe to switch gears a bit to talk about your like professional side you mentioned that you had been working in tech and product development for a lot of years now and in different locations can you tell us about what got you interested and hooked to get into this space for sure so just a little background context I was based in San Francisco for about seven years uh, after I graduated from college where I met Earth. And from 2013 to 2018, I was working at a variety of tech companies there from smaller startups. I interned at Udemy when it was just 40 people, all the way to joining Dropbox and working on our growth product team. That taught me a lot. Yeah. Uh, I was going to ask if this was something that you discovered in college, did you know already that you wanted to do this before graduation? I knew that I wanted to move to Silicon Valley when Earth and I were at Dartmouth. I I don't know how you felt about this, Earth, but Mm -hmm. I felt like everyone was going into professional services. Everyone was going Mm -hmm. into banking, finance, Mm -hmm. consulting, Mm -hmm. and... When I did a couple of the interviews and visited New York Mm. and later interned in San Francisco, visited San Francisco, Mm -hmm. then I just drew a comparison and asked myself, like, which kind of hub did I prefer to be in? Mm. I remember at the time I met some really kind of bright and curious and frankly, just like super nerdy kids like you know from usually berkeley and Mm. some of them i'm still friends with today but i met them during my internship in san francisco in 2012 Mm. and i think that connection combined with kind of my curiosity around the kind of like startup culture at the time really drew me in so that's why in 2013 i actually got an offer at the time from google as well I think it's like their account strategist thing. And mm-hmm. I got it all, you know, some other offers that were more for startups mm-hmm. in San Francisco. I actually chose the startup. I chose a startup offer at the time because for me, I was really trying to optimize to learn and grow as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And I felt like that kind of environment at a startup would be, you know, what would help me grow the most. Mm-hmm. So that's why, you know, I landed where where I was in San Francisco working at this tech startup called Creative Live at the time. Mm-hmm. And I stayed there for about two years. I started off on their marketing team and I was super curious. There, there's a whole movement in the industry at the time to also blend marketing with products. Mm-hmm. And that profession was called growth. It was now it's actually very commonplace in the industry, but at the time it was very new. So mm-hmm. I was very curious about that. And my manager actually pulled me aside maybe about like six months into my role there. And he asked, Hey, we actually have an opening now on the product team at Creative Live to do this growth product thing. Mm-hmm. And what do you like to do it? Because we know like you're actually curious about this and you know, you've been really, you know, you've been very vocal about experimentation. <laughs> so why don't you mm. bring that kind of execution style to this other team? So that's how I switched from marketing to product is because my manager, Rick at the time was, you know, a great proponent and kind of like a champion mm-hmm. for me. And that led me to, you know, that helped set me up for the rest of the steps I took. Wow. And so when you moved over to San Francisco, or 
I think, right? You said San Francisco sure. was your first stop right after college. Yes. Was there any kind of culture shock in that sense, moving from East Coast to West Coast, or was it all pretty much the same for you? Yeah, totally different cultures. So just zooming out a little bit, like I grew up in the Midwest, right? Like mm. Midwest America is pretty, I would say like more grounded, you know, they don't like to really put themselves out there. They like to focus more on being, I don't want to say reserved, but they're just not like really marketing themselves. They're a little bit more humble in their approach. But at the same time, like if you go to the communities and these neighborhoods, they're all generally friendly people and they're good natured mm-hmm. and they're hardworking. So, you know, those Protestant kind of like ethics are kind of there. <laughs> now, going to Dartmouth on the East Coast of the US, I don't know how you felt about it, Earth, but mm-hmm. I felt like culture on, you know, at Dartmouth kind of resembled New York culture a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, people are, you know, more assertive, like some people are more aggressive, but mm-hmm. people are not afraid, right, to mm-hmm. really ask for what they want. and also to market themselves. And there's a little bit more of that kind of like hustle culture. And at the time, (laughs) there was a focus on all of us students trying to get jobs to Mm. also focus on like the more prestigious employers, whether Mm. it was, you know, certain banks or certain kind of like consulting firms. Mm -hmm. So at least on our college campus, there was a focus on like social status. And that was something I was like not as familiar with. I think that was kind mm. of new, but I adapted as much as I could to that. And when I moved to San Francisco, I realized over time that there was still some of that focus on status within the culture, but mm-hmm. there was also another part of, because San Francisco was so close to Silicon Valley, there was a interesting historical context of people who like to build things, people who were technically minded, like to mm-hmm. move to this area, and they like to be creative, they like to tinker, they like to innovate. And I think for part of the time, like while I was there, that still felt very true, especially when I had just moved there, I felt like, wow, everyone around me is just, they're just working on whatever they think is cool. That feels really great. Well, that felt really great, like culturally. But over time, then I kind of left the honeymoon period as well. So I'm like, <laughs> oh, wait, actually, San Francisco and New York are both also big cities on a coast. And that means they all have these like large coastal cities all have this focus on competition. And Mm. there are these status oriented kind of games people play, albeit it's slightly different. Like in New York might be more about money, but then in San Francisco Mm. might be more about like knowledge and like how much you Mm know. Mm. But I don't think that was like, (laughs) that was something I'd like when I moved to San Francisco, I knew about or really, mm. you know, influenced my decision. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Super interesting to hear your reflection back, right? It's also made me think about my own experience at Dartmouth and like, you know, going to an American university. And I actually like resonated a lot with you around like, you know, being at Dartmouth around how in a way it was competitive because you really needed to stand out, right? To go through corporate recruiting, Also, our classes were quite small and it was structured in a way that participation was important. And for me, that was definitely a challenge, you know, growing up not speaking English as a primary language and not speaking up very much in Thai school and just moving to that kind of environment where you are expected to participate and to speak up and to stand out in some ways to be remembered either for your classes or activities and recruiting jobs if you could go back actually to that time period Mm. would you have told yourself as a student anything yeah i mean i think with the awareness then i would tell myself that hey like you know it's okay if you know i felt uncomfortable or felt that it was more difficult because this is not an environment that used to and i've already come a long way to be here Mm. and that it's okay for me to take time to learn how to 
speak up for my opinion quickly and not be afraid to share them even when I'm not sure yet because I think that was the tendency that I wanted to think through very clearly and thoroughly before I speak up. But like in an like in an American classroom, if I wait, <laughs> you know, for a uh, silent spot to speak up, it may not come. Right, the class would have already ended. <laughs> totally, that's great learning and great yeah, insight. I resonate with that. Dexter, I also wanted to ask you about the newsletter that you've mentioned. So it's called Money Abroad. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? For sure. So after I left San Francisco, okay. So the reason why I left San Francisco was also mm-hmm. closer to the tail end. I felt a little burned out from the tech industry. I mm-hmm. wanted to experience something different. And the first step I thought of was, hey, I'm going to pull the trigger on this travel sabbatical thing that I've wanted to do since high school, but I just never had the savings to do. Mm-hmm. So, hey, now, now I finally, you know, have some savings. Mm-hmm. I'm in my mid twenties. Why not do this travel spaggle thing? That's exactly what I did. Mm-hmm. I spent time in Southeast Asia, Europe, and South America. I actually met my wife during this time oh. period. We met in Singapore. She's not Singaporean though. She was from Australia, but we just happened to meet in Singapore mm-hmm. then. Mm-hmm. And after this sabbatical, we decided, hey, we like Southeast Asia the best out of all the places that we visited. So why don't we try to live there, you know, for a long period of time? So we actually moved to Singapore in March 2020. My, you know, wife, then girlfriend at the time, still, you know, she had a job, and I found one right before we moved, mm-hmm. and we had, ended up spending about three years in Singapore. Throughout the COVID pandemic <laughs> as well, mm. so throughout multiple COVID lockdowns, but it was safe. It definitely felt very, you know, safe relative to a lot of other parts of the world. Mm. During that time period, I realized, alongside my wife, like, wow, it's kind of complicated for us to figure out a few different parts of our finances. So one is, you know, she's Australian, I'm American. Like, how are we going to Combine our, you know, finances and, you know, manage those finances across currencies and across accounts. Two is deciding. Okay, we both have, you know, some of our financial lives, you know, in our respective mm-hmm. home countries. Like for her, mm-hmm. Australia; for me, the U.S. But now we're in Singapore. Where do we want to invest, and mm-hmm. where do we want to continue, you know, to save and invest going forward? So th- those were some mm-hmm. of the examples of questions we were asking mm-hmm. that were a little bit more high level, mm-hmm. and also in, like the more tactical stuff. Even when we just moved to Singapore, it's like, how mm-hmm. do we decide what bank accounts to even set up? Like, and also if I maintain my U.S. accounts, mm-hmm. does that mean I need to maintain like a U.S. phone number and you know, yeah. U.S. I- mailing address? Those kind of questions. I resonate so much with these questions you pointed out, right? Because I think for many of us who have moved around, we all have juggled with this. It's the same thing with me moving from Singapore to Thailand, Thailand to France, and there aren't that many resources that are catered or really answer these kind of questions, right? Okay, do I keep my Singapore Rian bank account now that I left Singapore to Bangkok, and now that I live and work in France? When I worked at Google, the stock accounts for the Google Options is tied to an American one. So how do oh, I keep track or manage that? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and all the taxes cross borders. One hundred percent. And I'm an American citizen. So for those of you who don't know, <laughs> U.S. citizens get taxed globally. The U.S. is like one mm-hmm. of maybe. A handful of countries in the world that taxes its citizens, no matter where they are, and the taxes for overseas citizens gets even more complicated. So I felt like a large part of my learnings in the past couple of years as well has centered around those taxes. Hmm. So you said you, you know, and your then girlfriend had a lot of questions around, you know, managing your own finances and having this like very unique, complex setup. And from that point. How did it turn into 
money abroad. Definitely. We started talking about these issues with just ourselves at first, but then we started talking about these challenges with other expat friends. Singapore, for those of you who don't know, has a fairly large expat community. Mm -hmm. And there's hundreds of thousands of other expats who are there for work. And we had a bunch of other expat friends who were like, oh, yeah, I, you know, faced a similar kind of challenge all the way from, hey, I relocated and I still have all my stuff, you know, back in the U.S. in a storage unit somewhere. <laughs> How do I mm -hmm. address this to, okay. Yeah, my wife and I are still trying to figure out like, how are we going to decide where to put retirement accounts? So those kind of questions were also on the top of mind of our expat friends. So what I wanted to do is create more informational resources mm -hmm. around these questions and use money abroad really as a platform to facilitate this almost like peer to peer discussion around mm. these money and wealth related questions that expats in Singapore, but also across APAC, North America and Europe are similarly facing. Mm -hmm. So money abroad is a weekly newsletter. It's about building systems for, you know, building wealth, living abroad, but it's also a community of other expats who are sharing their learnings from their journey mm -hmm. and contributing that as a set of experiences for other expats to learn from. Mm. Nice. And where can they find this community or subscribe to your newsletter? Maybe you can just do a quick shout out to your platform and we'll also link it in the show notes for all the listeners interested. For sure. Money Abroad is at moneyabroad.co. So moneyabroad.co. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Very nice. And what maybe, you know, two or three unexpected or interesting learnings that you have had from creating and running abroad, Dexter? This could be for yourself personally, or maybe the learnings in terms of managing personal finance that we all could learn from. Definitely. One of the things that I've learned from conversations with expats is that wealth accumulation is mm. very, very different from wealth preservation. And mm. what I've learned is that even when some people living abroad, they have great high paying jobs and they're earning a lot of income, that's not necessarily equivalent to like knowing how to invest or knowing what to do with all the savings and income that they're generating, you know, from their job. I think that's actually a very important point because I would, you know, classify myself as someone who thought, hey, because I'm, you know, working in a nice paying kind of tech job and I'm mm. earning a lot, that must mean like I'm pretty financially savvy. But after I started diving into this personal finance world, I realized, hey, there's so much information or there's so much knowledge out there mm. that I feel like I'm just beginning, you know, to scratch the surface on. And I felt like that was surprising for me at the time. And when I talked to other tech workers, for example, mm -hmm. we kind of have like a similar conversation. It's like, oh, one, you know, tech worker friend I had talked to a financial advisor mm -hmm. and he felt like he was an intermediate in terms of like financial knowledge before mm -hmm. talking to this mm -hmm. financial advisor about how he was investing his portfolio, his financial goals. And mm -hmm. after the conversation, he felt like he was actually a beginner in financial <laughs> knowledge because he realized, wow, there's like all these different questions that I haven't even answered for myself yet from, hey, what is it that I'm actually trying to use money for in terms of financial goal 
to like, okay, what are the actual ways I'm going to get there? Mm. So that's one realization.、Mm-hmm. Another one, maybe as just insight more from the journey of building、yeah. money abroad. So, money abroad is still pretty new. It's been、mm-hmm. three months since、mm. we've started, and we have about 1,400 subscribers so、mm-hmm. far. But what I realized is that expat communities are kind of fragmented.、Mm. And it's not actually very easy to put them all, you know, bring them all together. Yeah. These communities are all hyper local. You know,、mm-hmm. like your community in Paris for expats might be very different than, you know, the community in Singapore. Although、right. there are a lot of French people in Singapore.、Mm-hmm. And they have different cultural characteristics based on these localizations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how are you bridging that at the moment? Or... So I haven't figured out exactly how to bring all those different local kind of communities together yet. But that is something that, yeah, I think I'm at more of the solutioning stage of how to make that mm-hmm. happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's cool to hear your learnings, right? Both on the、um, personal one and also on the financial planning part, because I resonate so much with both. I personally really like set and forget kind of systems,、mm-hmm. right? So I think things you can automate, things you can set aside so you don't have to worry about. Then maybe later, you know, then that can save you from, yeah, some, some of these additional costs and, and pains.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And on your second point around you know, building a community of expats or people from different places, and they're all so different. And I think we, you know, Gina and I also resonate with this podcast, right? And we're learning as we grow. And I wonder, I mean, for us, I think the approach has been that we try to find this like common thread or what. We think is unique and interesting, and that hopefully other people will resonate. And I mean, you know, our listeners, you can tell us whether that's been the case for you, or, you know, if you have any suggestions, like you can let us know as well. But I think that has been our approach so far. I love that. I think there's a cultural common thread for sure for a lot of people who kind of move abroad. Yes, sometimes it's just a purely financial decision. Maybe you want to move abroad for a better pay or more、mm-hmm. influential kind of position in your company,、mm-hmm. some kind of career decision. But、mm-hmm. I imagine for a majority of people living abroad, it's also about wanting to explore like new cultures,、mm-hmm. exploring your own culture and kind of like how you would grow in that dimension while living abroad. At least that's what I like to imagine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe、yeah. it's not true. <laughs> no, I think so. And as you look back at your own journeys, Dexter, what had been some defining moments as you moved through different stages and places? Ooh, I think for me, when I moved to San Francisco, I think that was a defining moment because I was. Moving from the East Coast to the West Coast of, of the US, which felt like a big leap at the time because、mm-hmm. it was quite a contrast culturally. And I didn't know too many people on the West Coast at the time because Dartmouth was very East Coast centric.、Mm-hmm. But when I moved you know, from San Francisco to Singapore, I think that was a defining moment for me for different reasons. It、mm-hmm. was, you know, going from East Coast to West Coast was, hey, I'm going to chase this, you know, Silicon Valley startup dream for my career as like a early 20s, recent grad. This is where I want to, you know, build the first few years of、mm-hmm. my career. And this is where I、mm-hmm. want to meet new friends and kind of like start my journey there. But moving from San Francisco to Singapore was, Maybe a little bit more along the lines of, hey, life is kind of short. And do I want to spend all of my time just in one place? Or 
do I have other aspirations that come from my value system? And what I, what I mean by that is I had a career coaching kind of side business when I had left San Francisco. I ran that for about three years. And one of the exercises I would love to do with clients was a values discovery exercise. Mm -hmm. I've done that exercise myself, and it's basically an exercise where you take a list of about 50 different values, and then you end up stack ranking them based on your own self-reflection, it was very difficult to do because it forces you to stack rank these different words. And what came out at the top for me was five values. It was on relationships, adventure, curiosity, courage. Yeah, so those were some examples of some of those top values. And I realized I wasn't satisfying some of those values Mm. when I was living in San Francisco and working in tech there, I wanted a little bit of exploring what it was like to work internationally, which was Mm -hmm. something I was curious about, and which also aligned with my kind of desire for adventure at the time. So I'll say that was a defining moment, because it forced me in my late 20s to think about my values a little bit more deeply and to try to make a decision based on that value system. And was there a moment once you've moved to Singapore where you really thought, okay, now I'm home? Ooh, home for me is like an interesting word, right? Because mm-hmm. I think growing, growing up, I always felt like, okay, home is like this house that my mm-hmm. parents live in. So when I go back home, I go back home and, you know, there's my family. And after going to school, then moving across country and just being generally like thousands of kilometers away from my family, I've had to almost rewire the way I think about home. So I don't Mm -hmm. feel too guilty (laughs) all the time of feeling like, oh, I'm actually pretty far away from where I originally grew up and where my parents are as well. Mm -hmm. And if I keep thinking about it in the context of that, I actually end up feeling like quite guilty all the time. So I've tried to rewire it Mm -hmm. if like, okay, home is where my important people are instead of, you know, a particular physical location. And I have kind of important people everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I have, you know, my wife, you know, where we stay currently. And that to me is also home that we're spending time together and that we have, you know, close friends nearby. That's also an aspect of home. Mm -hmm. So it's not as binary anymore. It's more of a spectrum. It's like I have a little bit more of home here, but then I also have some home (laughs) based on Mm. other, you know, family members Mm -hmm. scattered, you know, in the US or in Shanghai and so forth. Mm -hmm. So definitely more about relationships than the location. Yes. Yes. And what what about for you, Gina? How do you approach home? And has that changed over time? It's such a hard question. And I think for me, it's definitely also the people around me and Mm -hmm. the feeling of comfort, I think, or the level of comfort I feel in a place or in a situation. That's usually based around the people that I have. But I do resonate with what you said about the guilt of not being close to where my parents are. So they live in Thailand. It's weird. Yeah, I have moments where, I mean, I feel really comfortable here living here in Switzerland for so long that it is also home for me. But then when I talk about, oh, I miss home, I'm talking about Thailand. But Mm. in a way, it's home, but it's also not home anymore because I've not lived there for so long that, I mean, if I actually were to go back and move back, I would have to rebuild from scratch or not from scratch per se, but a lot, right? But there's certain aspects cognitive dissonance, right? Yeah. Do you ever feel that? I feel a little bit of dissonance when I think about the concept of home because it's like, well, I'm home here, but there's also home over there. And how can that yeah. be possible? How can, so mm. so that's why I'm trying to think about it a little bit less in a binary mm. fashion and more of mm. like a spectrum. Yeah, I agree with both of you that it's more of the comfort and that it's the people that you're around, right? Because I feel at home here in Paris. And when I visit my family in Thailand, 
But, you know, also every time I visit Gina in Switzerland, I feel also at home because, you know, mm -hmm. I've, you know, like a few comfort and I've, I'm there so much, even though I'm not like, I don't quote unquote live there, but yeah. it just feels so familiar that it's a home. And I, when I, yeah, so <laughs> it's weird. It's weird. It's also nice at the same time. Yeah. So, and I think it's also something that we, I mean, I don't know, but it's something that I think we seek out a little bit is this feeling of comfort mm -hmm. when we move to a new place. So maybe Dexter, what made, other than, of course, you know, the people around you now in Singapore and your wife, what made or what helped make Singapore feel more like home or more like a place where you feel mm. at home? Ooh. So aside from, yeah, people, you know, having loved ones or close friends nearby, other things that made it feel like home for me is honestly, one, just picking a nice place to live. Mm. where I'm, you know, surrounded by what I enjoy. So I enjoy nature. I enjoy, you know, seeing greenery or kind of nice spaces. And fortunately, Singapore, even though it's a urban metropolis, it still has, mm -hmm. you know, quite a lot of greenery and parks. And so we, we live next to a park and we live next to the Singapore River. And it was possible to go on a nice run, you know, along the river all the way from our home to Marina Bay Sands. And mm -hmm. that was just really nice because after I started building some habits around going on those runs or taking bike rides or strolls along those paths, mm -hmm. then it kind of felt like, wow, I'm kind of almost building familiarity with this mm -hmm. physical environment. And mm -hmm. that helped it feel like home for me. We did the same thing with our apartment. We tried to furnish it really nicely. You know, mm -hmm. my wife was really into the decorations, finding great decorations as well. And she also draws and has some great art. So mm -hmm. we put up a, a bunch of that art and that also helped make our apartment interior space feel a little bit more like home. Those mm -hmm. were yeah, things that were a little bit more physical, but I do feel like that's still important to me to mm -hmm. make something feel like home. Mm. Absolutely. And what has been a difficult moment for you moving around and how did you overcome it? Ooh, yeah, I think a big challenge. I'd be curious to hear, you know, Gina, if you felt the same way, kind of moving halfway across the world too, is the rebuilding of social relationships. It's like every time you move, then you have to put in time and energy into maintaining your past relationships where mm -hmm. you were previously and then investing, building new ones in your current community. And inevitably, you know, you only have so much finite time. Mm -hmm. So what I've at least learned is like, I probably have let some you know, relationships go along the way, because that's, you know, the reality of like, when you move, and you just need to make room for people who you're meeting kind of like in your new community, right. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I want to make sure that I'm prioritizing close friendships that I've had, you know, throughout different parts of my life. Mm -hmm. And to continue just to, you know, randomly call them or set up a chat or group chat or sometimes yeah. Just to catch up on life. Yeah. How have you dealt with that? Facebook helps. That's the only reason why I still have a Facebook <laughs> account mm. is when I moved over to Switzerland, we graduated. So everyone moved all over, a bunch in the States, all over Asia and so on. And I think the easiest way to stay in touch was through Facebook. And I think the nice thing was there are a few close friends who really helped me through the tough time that I had when I moved over here, not having any mm. friends at all, couldn't really speak the language. And yeah, those relationships really helped me kind of get my footing here. And then as time moved on and I built new relationships, right, new friendships in Switzerland, you're absolutely right. There's only finite amount of time and 
energy that you can actually put into maintaining and growing these relationships that I've had to let some go. And it's really hard because mm-hmm. I'm a really, or like I consider myself to be a social person and I have great yeah. friends and I still want to stay friends with everyone and I want to know what's happening and yeah, stay in touch, but it's just not possible. And I think at some point you also realize that you're not the only one who has to let go, that it's also your friends who have moved away and have to, you know, start new friendships and that they have to do the same thing. But what I think was really nice was what I realized is for, you know, your really good friends, the ones that you have a great foundation of trust and of friendship with it doesn't matter if you see you don't talk to one another i don't know for years if you randomly meet up in thailand because you're both there on holiday it feels like no time has passed and you're still really comfortable with one another and you can Mm. talk about your life (laughs) you know what happened since i've seen you last And that was four years ago. And I think that's the nicest part about it is there are just certain people who, when you meet again, you feel so comfortable around and you can just share as if no time has passed. Yeah. I don't know. I would agree with that. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, Earth, you've done more moving than I have in that sense. How was that for you? Because I think you still have a lot of good friends back in Thailand as well. And then, you know, friends from college, friends from UWC mm-hmm. and all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a balance that I'm always trying to, like, you know, push and pull or expand and contract at different times. I mean, I agree with both of you, right? That we need to maybe let go of some of the relationships to make room for the new ones. But at the same time, it's also then and also like meaningful personally to keep these relationships. Right. And when you are in the transition period or have just moved, you may still need to rely on those close connections that you have from previously. And for me, this balance is about like, you know, how do I like, you know, open enough room for new relationships where I am now? Let's say, you know, after moving to Paris, but at the same time, how do I keep in touch with like some of my best friends in Thailand or those who live in Switzerland or London Mm. and you know many places and it's not easy and sometimes we don't see each other for two three years sometimes we see each other every month so it varies over time I think and I guess like that balance like trying to balance is will always be like moving or not a struggle per se but I think that's just how things will be Mm -hmm. yeah I like that word that you said, Gina, around trust, because if I trust like a friend that we can pick up the conversation, like no Mm -hmm. time has passed, that's usually Mm -hmm. what ends up happening. It's like we just end up picking up a conversation like no time has passed. Of course, it needs to be mutual, too. So they they probably need to feel the same way. But if there's that kind of mutual trust, I think that that helps like even if you don't talk for like years and years that still helps keep the relationship alive yeah Mm -hmm. and i think probably one of the biggest learnings that i went through personally was i wanted to stay friends with everyone still and it was really hard for me to lose a friendship in that sense even though It doesn't make sense at all, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, yeah, sometimes it's just the distance and you just don't spend that time together. And of course, you can't maintain that relationship. And I think I was just really disappointed that I wasn't able to maintain it. And I think it's okay. Now for me, it's like, no, that's actually, it's fine. It's nothing wrong with you or this other person. It's just how life goes and sometimes people stick, right? These people who you trust and they trust you. It's, as you said, mutual. And then you bump into one another again and you recreate or you create new beautiful moments together. And then you go from there. Maybe you don't see each other for another 10 years, but then in 10 years you meet again and it just feels familiar again. And all the rest, all the in-between 
filler friendships. I don't know. I don't like to think of it as that, but just all the other in between beautiful moments that you've had with other people. It's fine that you don't retain everyone and all your friendships you've had in your life mm-hmm. because it's just not possible. Yeah, it's just not possible, right? So I think that was for me right. a really big learning. I resonate that. Yeah, it's not like the in between is like filler friends, but you also never know if a friendship is going to evolve into something really great down the road or not as well. So it's also kind of an explorative journey. Yeah. And maybe just like kind of one comment as like I'm Mm -hmm. getting older is I definitely see like why some people have told me, hey, it gets more challenging, like making friends like the older you you Mm -hmm. get, right? Because everyone's got like less time. Everyone like I'm in my early 30s and this is kind of like the time where a lot of people start families and, Mm -hmm. you know, have kids and they got all these other obligations like with work and whatnot. So then it becomes a little bit, you know, more challenging because like you have like less time to like still make the same amount of progress in a relationship. But I also think like on the flip side, I'm probably better at you know, having a good conversation now than <laughs> when I knew Earth like 10 years ago, you know? <laughs> so pros and cons of growing older and how we make friendships. Mm-hmm. And do you find it really hard as an expat living in Singapore that is so, you know, it's full of expats? Yeah, for, fortunately, I think, going. fortunately, I think Singapore is one of those places where expats are generally very open and friendly to meeting mm-hmm. new people. I don't know how your experience was Earth in Singapore, mm-hmm. but I feel like generally the expat community is always down to like meet up and hang out and mm-hmm. wanting to, you know, meet other people and generally kind of curious, like, why are you here? Mm-hmm. What, you know, what made you decide to stay in Singapore? The mm-hmm. challenge is more expats tend to come and go. And mm-hmm. so they're spending, you know, a few years there leaving. And if you're in Singapore for longer than, you know, a few years, you might see like mm. multiple waves of these yeah. groups come and go. And that's, I mean, I, hasn't, I haven't seen that, but that sounds mm-hmm. kind of tiring <laughs> to mm-hmm. have to go through that set of experiences. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I found it quite easy to make friends and meet other people in Singapore because it's such a vibrant expats community, like you said. But I also agree that, you know, the turnover is quite high, right? Like myself included, right? Like that I left after three years and I could already see when I was there that like some of my close friends had like transitioned on to other places. And I can imagine it being hard that some people that you spend so much time with that are such a big part of your life, then, you know, suddenly go. But I guess that also makes room for new ones and new sorts of experiences and connections. Yeah, how do you handle that earth like without also getting that kind of like jaded expat mindset of like, oh man, you know, my friends just left and now I got to like meet new people, right? Yeah, I guess they don't all leave at the same time. So it's not like a 100% turnover, right? So you still have, you know, parts of them that are still there and then you continuously meet new people and those that have moved away you can still stay in touch and see each other but your relationships change or, or move to a different state right so i think it's a gradual process makes sense mm-hmm. what accomplishments are you most proud of and why for me i guess my sense of accomplishment has kind of changed over time like Mm. Maybe when I was 22, you know, I was more happy with the idea of like, hey, I managed to get a job in kind of like Silicon Valley and I was able to move ahead in my career. But that has changed over the years to now being more proud of, hey, I'm actually living up to my value system and like kind of what I believe. And I am 
willing to you know, stand up for that and to continue to take actions based on those values. And I say those things, they're just words, but it's actually really hard mm. to do regularly. So I've felt, yeah, kind of proud that I think over the past few years, I've been able to do that more and more. And I've mm -hmm. really tried hard to stick to my values and use kind of reflections, maybe like monthly reflections to kind of tell, am I actually taking actions according to my values, whether it is for my relationships or work or my health. Mm. The main ones that I'm thinking of right now is like, I care a lot about consistency. So one theme that I've been just trying to do a lot of things according to is consistency, just trying to show up every day in my personal life for, you know, my relationships, family, as well as showing up professionally. And then two is also having the courage to really, you know, do something, even if it's unconventional or mm -hmm. it's like the Asian mentality, right? It's like deep down inside, I probably still have mm. some confusing values where like if my parents, you know, are mm -hmm. happy with a decision, then I'm like, oh, great. I'm doing a great job. <laughs> but even though mentally, I know that that's completely, you know, separate from is it actually a good decision or not? Yeah. Right? Mm. And I just say parents, that's just one example. It's not, this is not a, mm. it's just not a parent, like me versus parents, you know, context, but it's sometimes it's, you know, colleagues, sometimes it's friends, sometimes mm. it's even just feeling like, oh, I'm doing something that's maybe beneficial for me, but not necessarily for society <laughs> as a whole. Sometimes that's okay as well. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I tried to make peace with that. Yeah, I love that. So like not relying or seeking external validation, right? And be consistent in doing things for yourself. So more self-love and self-care. Yes, that's exactly summed yeah. up beautifully. That's awesome. And lastly, Dexter, what would be your parting advice to our listeners? Oof. I guess what I can share here would be Okay, I'll, I'll give one kind of financial yep. learning for, you know, from the money broad perspective. And then two is more from the perspective of just someone who has moved abroad a lot and yep. or moved around a lot. So one from a financial kind of perspective, one of the things that I think is highly underrated is automation and being mm -hmm. able to set and forget your finances, even if they are cross border. One of, one of the things that I've done and, you know, talked to other expats about doing is using cross border kind of money transfer tools like wise mm -hmm. and Revolut to mm -hmm. set up schedule transfer systems. Mm -hmm. So as your kind of financial accounts system gets mm -hmm. more complex, like you got mm -hmm. accounts across like three or four different countries. Mm -hmm. It's still possible for you to set up all the schedule transfers on a monthly basis so that when a paycheck hits your checking account in one country, you can set up the schedule so you can make the cross-border transfers to your, you know, to fund your investment accounts in another country, to pay off your credit cards in another country, pay your base bills in even yet another country. Mm -hmm. And that is one thing that's definitely helped me. So setting up those automations using money transfer apps like Wise and Revolut. Mm -hmm. So that's the financial tip. The second tip for moving abroad, maybe this might be specific to American listeners, but mm -hmm. probably for other listeners as well is when you, you know, live abroad or decide to move abroad, set up your own mailbox back in your home country mm -hmm. and try to maintain a uh, phone number back in your home country because what I've learned is that all these different financial service applications as well as software as a service applications, they, they all tend to ask for your address or your phone number. Mm -hmm. mm. And if your parents don't live back in you know your home country or you don't have friends back in mm. the home country, 
who you can, you know, borrow their address for these kind of services, they're kind of out of luck. So mm. set up these kinds of mailboxes, remote mailboxes, remote phone numbers, depending on the country, there's like different yeah. services for those, but that can help with easing mm. the pain of moving away. Okay. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's really interesting. I'm thinking more in terms of, okay, then you can get to have your Netflix account to be with, I don't know, set up with the American right exactly. address and credit card versus now the Singaporean one. But also something that just came to mind when you mentioned this, since we're talking about finances, I have a maybe a follow-up question, last bonus follow-up question. Because I know that in the States, credit scores are massively important. How does moving abroad affect this? Does it have any effect on this? And does it, is it, you know, valuable in this case to also set up and maintain an address and a phone number and I don't know what for this purpose? Well, in the U.S., credit scores are, yeah, they're used for a variety of purposes. They help determine kind of what what mortgage rates you're you're eligible for if you wanted to get a home loan you know they impact kind of how much credit you can get from your credit card in terms of credit card limits they impact what credit cards you're eligible for the score itself is a composite of a bunch of different components Mm -hmm. one of those components for example is how long of a credit history do you have Mm -hmm. with the accounts that are still open right Another component is how many accounts do you still have open? Mm -hmm. Those are some examples of components that I think could be impacted if you decide to move abroad and then, let's say, close all of your accounts all of a sudden. Mm. Very interesting. I'm pretty sure that would impact your credit score if you were to move abroad and then close all your U.S. credit cards, let's say. Okay. Also something to think about before someone decides to move abroad. So make sure to follow and subscribe to Money Abroad to find out more. All right. Thanks so much, Dexter. We loved having you on the show. Thank you, Dexter, for joining us. Thanks, Earth. Yeah, so great chatting with you guys. Thank you, everyone. We'll see you in the next episode. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of Unpack Global Citizens with your host, Earth and Gina. We're so happy to have you in our community. If you enjoyed this, share it with your friends. Want to share your experiences with us or wish we would ask a particular question? Find us on Instagram and Twitter at unpacked.globalcitizens. Thanks again. Thanks again.